So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 18, Matthew chapter 18. Um, I am excited about this series. Let me tell you a couple reasons why. The parables are the stories of Jesus found in the Gospels. And I, I love this series because uh, I love stories. I love movies. I love books. I love when I sit down with a new person, kind of hearing their journey, their story. Um, but the reality is human stories have limits. They can inspire us. They can certainly influence us. But they don't have the power to transform our hearts from the inside out. Uh, I remember like years ago, uh, going to the old AMC Quail Springs. It wasn't the place that it is now, but uh, and seeing Braveheart. And uh, Braveheart is like like top three movies for me. Um, it was just it was just powerful when I saw it, and like I was like I was so fired up coming out of that place. Like I'm gonna live for Jesus. I'm gonna live and die for him. You know, you have one chance. You know, but like two days two days later, it's like it's like gone. Right? William Wallace is dead. You know, I'm not meditating on the glories of William Wallace, right? That's not changing my heart. Human stories have limits. Jesus' stories have the power to transform us. And so that is something I'm excited about as we step into this. The second thing is that in these stories, Jesus has given us like inside access to what reality is is like, like what God's like, um, what we're like, and what what real reality is like. How many of you uh, know and love the show West Wing? Anybody with me? Anyone? Okay, so that's at least like six people. We had like three before. So uh, really glad you guys raised your hand. I love the show West Wing. Love it. And uh, a, a friend of mine who's also a West Wing junkie asked me this question. He's like, why do you love the West Wing? And by the way, if you don't know, West Wing is a show about the White House. Politics aside, regardless of how you feel about that, like it's about the White House, uh, the president, Jed Bartlett, and how they lead and govern the nation. Okay, so that's what the show is. He asked me this question, why do you love the show? And it's like, oh, let me just tell you why I love the show. The acting's great. The, uh, the writing is just masterful. But, but really in the core, why I love it is it's giving me access to something that I don't or wouldn't normally have access to. The White House and how it works. Well, that's the parables of Jesus In the parables of Jesus, we are getting access to the king and to his kingdom, right? And the parables, most all of them are about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, right? And the kingdom of God is is not a region like America. Um, The kingdom of God is is a realm where what God wants done is Done. So these stories aren't just stories with like morals, like, you know, the boy who cried wolf is, means don't lie, right? And so the good Samaritan must mean be nice to people, right? No, it's describing a king and his kingdom. And we know the kingdom is here announced and inaugurated with Jesus. He brought the kingdom and demonstrated the kingdom. Well, it's not all the way here yet, is it? 
No, our purpose as Christians is to bring the kingdom wherever we go, in our vocation, with our talents, right? We're to pray your kingdom come, your will be done everywhere. We're to live out the ethics of the kingdom, right? And Jesus is describing these dynamics. That's what he's doing. And the stories have all kinds of like shock factor. You know, like Jesus, if you know him, um, if you've met him, he just is not appropriate, is he? Really, he's not appropriate. Um, Is he sinless? Yes, but is he appropriate? No, think, think of his life. Think of like what is essentially the equivalent of a Nichols Hills dinner party on a Friday night. And a prostitute busts into this and begins wiping his feet with her hair. Awkward. Right? That's what God's like? Yeah. Think of it. Spits on the ground, makes a little mud pie, wipes it on um, this guy's eyes in order to heal him. Really? That's what God's like? Yeah. That's what he's saying. And the parables are the same way. Think of the Good Samaritan. Good, Good Samaritan in one sentence is essentially a preacher and a priest walk over a half-dead, bleeding man, and the equivalent in our culture of a radical Muslim is the one Jesus says helps him out. So put that in your nice, clean Christian pipe and smoke it, right? (laughs) Jesus is not appropriate. If you haven't been offended by Jesus, you haven't met him. If you haven't been offended by Jesus, you haven't met him. You can't dismiss this as nice talk from a nice guy. Jesus intentionally offends people's sensibilities to wake them up to reality. The parable we're going to look at today in Matthew 18 is the same way. It will shock you. It's heavy. It's intense. This isn't light and breezy stuff. I'll warn you in advance. This entire section... The context is is all about how sin breaks apart relationships and and what we're to do about it, right? And if you've lived life for any length of time at all, you know this is true. Think of your relationships. Anger, rage, violence, um, infidelity, even things that we dismiss like self-pity and Laziness and complacency, envy. These are the kinds of things that we dismiss as sort of, ah, sin's ludicrous, sin's outdated, it's antiquated concept. But really, it's what we have to do with day in and day out. Sin breaks apart relationships, and Jesus is going to go to the heart of it with this story. And it's relevant for every single one in this room because everyone in here has been sinned against, is being sinned against, or will be sinned against. It's for all. But I want to speak specifically to some of you, maybe many of you who have deep pain in this room because you've been hurt by perhaps a church, perhaps leaders in a church, perhaps family members, people who are very close to you. It seems like 
that's the way it happens. For some of you, um, it's, it's more like little offenses that have been swept under the rug over years of time. You're living with an offended heart. It's kind of death by a thousand cuts. And offenses are kind of like mosquitoes, right? You get one mosquito, it's like done, gone, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. But over years of time, little offenses built up, not forgiven, not dealt with, is like having a thousand mosquitoes in a locked room. That is dangerous. That will take your life. If you live with an offended heart, you'll be on the edge of anger all the time. An anger problem is most usually an unforgiveness problem. So here's the main point. One sentence, an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. We're going to start in verse 21. Verse 21, the parable is preceded by a question. Peter had just heard Jesus say, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately. And so this is, this is what he asks. It's the logical question. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, what's going on here? What Peter and the guys had heard from rabbis in that culture over years of time is if somebody sins against you three times, you forgive them. But the fourth time, you are free to just whack them in whatever that looks like. You're free. Number four. So Jesus, Peter, always like the one to impress, you know, is like, I know Jesus, he's a pretty merciful guy. So I'm going to go double plus one. Jesus. Seven times? And Jesus is like, no, 77 times. Which, by the way, it's not like you track all the way. We're in our 60s now, this guy. (laughs) And give me just seven more. Come on, seven more. I do the math, right? The point isn't statistical accounting. The point is repeated forgiveness. It's limitless. John Calvin said it this way. He said, the meaning of 77 times is never give up on anyone. So, knowing that he'd said something pretty shocking in answering this question, Jesus tells a story. And it's got three scenes. And we're going to track through each one of them. Scene number one. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So let's do the economic work first. 10,000 talents. What is that? Well, one talent is the equivalent of 20 years wages. So if you make $30,000 a year, 
right? One talent would be $600,000, right? That's just one talent. 10,000 talents, do the math, is 10,000 times 600,000. That's $6 billion or you're up a serious creek if you're this servant. This guy has probably been on the run. He's probably been on the run. And Jesus is intentionally exaggerating to make a point about the kingdom, right? Imagine you've got a gazillion dollars of debt to your boss who happens to be a king, right? It's an unpayable debt, right? The servant could never have paid this debt, never. But what's he try to do? Tries to buy time. Hey, I saw this commercial 1-800-GET-OUT-OF-DEBT. If we could do some bill consolidating or some sort of installment plan, right? What, whatever we can do, have, I'll pay you everything. I mean, he's got $6 billion. I got you. Trust me. Now, debts in the Bible regularly refer to sins. And if you've had or have any amount of financial debt, be it student loans or credit card debt, maybe it's business debt that you just, you've been trying to get your head above water and you are drowning and you don't have any idea how that's going to happen. You know how oppressive that can be. Haunting, sleepless nights, weighty. It feels like a death on top of your shoulders. Well, that's real. And that's the imagery that Jesus intentionally uses to compare to our sins. Get that? Okay, so at camp, I'll tell you a story. One of the most powerful moments of, of camp was the second night when Andrew, uh, he preached on gospel-centered. And the beginning of his talk, he asked the, the kids to write on a note card a secret sin, something that maybe no one else knows about that they've done. And we told him, he told him real clearly, this is anonymous. Do not put your name on it. It's completely anonymous. And we collected them and we read some of the things. It, in, as leaders, it was just painful to our hearts. Things from, you know, I stole something from Walmart all the way to cutting and I'm a liar. And I ruin relationships with my anger. Um. It broke our hearts and actually caused us as leaders to weep over them and to pray for them. But here's what was so striking about that exercise is even though we told them real clearly and real directly, this is anonymous, don't put your name on it. When we said we were collecting them, you could feel the fear in the room. You could feel the fear of being exposed, the fear of being embarrassed. What's going on there? Is that just teenage insecurity? Is that what that is? No, that's humanity. That is humanity. Deep down, we know we can't cover the shame of those things. 
Deep down, we know we can't forgive ourselves. We can't pay for those things. Deep down, we know those sins aren't just ultimately against people or against ourselves or against society. They're against a holy king. We try to buy time and distract ourselves from the unpayable debt, numb out addictions or distractions, but it's not helping us. It's running just like this guy. And y'all hear me, as Andrew preached the gospel of God's grace, of his forgiveness, of his covering of our shame because of the blood of the cross, kids begin to repent, bring their junk into the light. And you know what they found in the light? Not exposure, not embarrassment from God, not ridiculing or scorning from him. What they found was the safety of the light of God's mercy, his kindness, and his forgiveness. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now, I want you just to stop. I want you to do that for a second. And I'm not going to call on anybody, and it's not embarrassing, but I want you just in your mind and in your heart to think of a secret sin, something that you may be the only one who knows about. You got that? Okay, now, Paul said in Romans 2 that according to his gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So everything that's in the dark will be brought into the light, everything. So imagine every secret, every secret you have in your life being, being laid out before a holy king and you claiming that in those things you really had no fault, that you're not that bad. I don't think you could feel that if you tried. I don't think I could, you could. I think what we'll feel is $6 billion of debt. I think that's true. And we shy away, you know, from this theme of judgment. But it's, it's really there in the parables, isn't it? It's part of Jesus' kingdom message is judgment. It's a theme that evil will be reckoned. Evil will be reckoned. And the call of a just and kind king is to get real and to get honest and get truthful. Stop lying to yourself about the evil inside that it is that level of sin debt. And you need to be forgiven. Need to be forgiven. This is the gospel. God is the king, full of love for people and full of justice for evil, both of which make him truly good, unlike any of us in this room and any, unlike any other God in the pantheon of gods that you might choose. He's just clearly and unequivocally better in his love and in his justice. We are the servant, not those people we inwardly despise, Name them. We owe an unpayable debt. Sin debt. And debts don't just go away, do they? Either you pay them or the one owed pays them. In this story, the king takes the debt on himself. It wasn't like he just snapped his fingers and, yeah, I got a lot of money. No big deal. No, the king takes the debt on himself. The king suffers this instead of making the servants suffer. 
when the servant is exposed, what's he feel? Shame, shame, tries to escape it, tries to avoid it. The king takes the shame on himself. Think of the citizens in the, in the town. What would they say about this king? He forgave that guy. Are you serious? He forgave that guy. This is the gospel. If you're a Christian and you've ever thought God was not good, look at the cross. Colossians chapter 2 says about us, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of what? Debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Did he just brush it aside? What'd he do with it? Nailing it to the cross. Someone suffered instead of you if you know Jesus. If you're not a Christian, the message is not, you owe God an unpayable debt, so you better get to work. You better get a little bit better. Think a little pure thoughts. Get a little bit more moral. If you've tried that, it's just straight exhausting. The servant did that. He got the have mercy on me part right. What he didn't get right was I'll pay you everything. He got that wrong. The message is humble yourself, admit your debt, and receive the love of God in Christ to save you and make you a new person. Okay, so that's scene one, us and God, vertical relationship. Now we're going to shift to horizontal, okay, us and others, scene two. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. Does that sound familiar? Probably rang true in this guy's heart. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So economics again, 100 denarii, roughly $10,000. So this guy who had owed a $6 billion debt to a king, thrashes a guy, ruins his life for 10 grand. For 10 grand. What's going on here? What's happening in this guy's heart? What's Jesus trying to say? Well, the king and his, the king and his love didn't become this guy's God. Money was his God. Still. Right? He'd been living off 10,000 talents. Six billion dollars on the run. Time to get it back. Time to figure that out. His heart wasn't changed. And the evidence of that was no forgiveness. The evidence of a changed heart is forgiveness in relationship. Propose three reasons why we don't forgive. Number one, I feel like, just frankly, we're better than others. It's a superiority. I would never have done that. Right? Ever. Second, we're just too busy to forgive. Right? We 
entertain ourselves, we distract ourselves, we tweet, we post, and right, we're just keeping ourselves distracted as much as we can. We're too busy to forgive. But then every now and again, maybe more frequently than not, we explode and we don't know why. Third reason we tend not to forgive, and I think this is the biggest, you've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. Looking into the face of Jesus and imagining, imagining, this is what it means by fix your eyes on Jesus, is in your heart, you, you meditate on this, you dwell on this, you think on this. Imagine the holes in his hands and in his feet. You imagine the cries of agony, the, the, the pierce marks, the blood spilling down his body. Um, the abuse of a naked God and the wrath of God being poured out on his body that had become sin for all of history, for all of humanity, it become sin. And he whispers, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like looking into that face, the face of Jesus on the cross will humble you of your pride. It will fill you with love and make room in your heart for the person that has been crowded out. Nothing else on this earth has that power, the power of the cross to do that. Nothing else. Let me give you a few things forgiveness is and isn't. The first, choosing to suffer. I tried to improve on a quote by Tim Keller, put it in my own language, but imagine I couldn't. So here you go. I'm just going to read it. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Say that forgiveness hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death, but it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. Forgiveness is choosing to suffer. You are not a victim in forgiving like Jesus chose the cross. You're aligning yourself with him. Kingdom ethic, one way to put it, is doing unto others as God has done to you. If you know a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a pastor in Germany in Hitler's time, and I wrote a book called Cost of Discipleship. I recommend it. And he wrote a lot on forgiveness. This is one of his best. He said, my brother's burden, which I must bear, is quite literally his sin. And the only way to bear that sin is by forgiving it in the power of the cross of Christ in which I now share. 
Forgiveness is the Christ-like suffering, which is the Christian's duty to bear. Secondly, forgiveness is releasing the debt to God. Now, I've not suffered some of the wrongs that you have suffered, but this, this concept was absolutely a game changer for me as I worked through hurts of past relationship. Forgiveness is not letting them off the hook. You're not excusing behavior. You're not justifying what they did. You're not uh, pretending it didn't hurt. In fact, you have to feel what happened to forgive from the heart. Forgiveness isn't even essentially letting go and letting God, whatever that means. I believe there's a releasing and letting go. But forgiveness principally is putting them on God's hook. It's transferring the right from you to be their judge to God to be their judge. Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's a much better and wiser judge than you. Because this is a relational dynamic, right? We've been hurt in horizontal relationships with others. Our healing actually has to come through vertical relationship, experiencing our forgiveness from Jesus, being empowered by the gospel to forgive and transferring the right to God to be their judge. Much wiser, much better. Forgiveness doesn't mean letting people abuse you or walk all over you. Look in Jesus when he was struck. He said, no, that's illegal. But Hebrews says he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to he who judges justly. Doesn't also mean that you necessarily get back in relationship with them if those dangerous things have been the case. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same. Trust has to be rebuilt and that takes two humbled people. So choosing to suffer, releasing your debt. And then third, it's, it's regular. It's regular. You remember the Lord's prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Listen, Jesus assumes two things with this. He assumes we will sin and need forgiving. That's kind of relieving, isn't it? He assumed that. That's why he gave you the prayer. Second thing he assumes is you will be sinned against. And you'll need this. I would venture to guess that out of all the pieces of the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, give, give me today what I need, that this forgiving others part is the part we do the least. Like think of this, over the last six months, the prayer is something to the effect of, I forgive blank, the person, for blank, what they did. Has that actually been something that you've prayed? If not, there may be unresolved unforgiveness in your heart. Or you've been like living in a hole somewhere where on an island. Right? This is a tool given from God. Martin Luther King said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. And if there's anyone who would know, Dr. King would. It's a permanent attitude. Okay, scene three. Scene three. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now remember, God's intent isn't just to steal our joy. It's not just to make our lives miserable. His intent actually is to lead us to life. He's for human flourishing. He's for your heart flourishing. But he always tells us the truth. If you don't forgive, what's that look like? Well, it's what Jesus describes. It's a prison of bitterness and anger with torturers that will rot out your soul from the inside out. Um, it may be, it isn't necessarily, but it may even affect you physically, the unforgiveness, like ulcers, back pain, or arthritis. These kinds of things can be connected to unforgiveness. If you go to a nursing home, anyone in the city, you'll see this played out in a hundred different ways. It's an author named Seth Haynes. He wrote a book called Coming Clean. And in it, he describes his addiction to alcohol. And and it all kicked in when his newborn son um, uh, had a life-threatening condition and was in the hospital. And he traces the source of that addiction to unforgiveness. And this is a little bit long, but I want to read it to you because I think it's worth it for you to hear. He says this, the foul word, the fist, Harmful theologies, the sexual dalliance, the pursuit of self, these are the fangs that inject the poison of bitterness, anger, and malice. The poison saturates the spirit, and without the antidote, it's too much. I chose alcohol to cope. Others choose the eating disorder, the manipulation, pornography habit, the cutting, the pills, the unbending idolatry of the intellect. And if we give a foothold to these coping mechanisms, don't they change our character Don't we become the very thing we most despise? Don't we inject the painful poison into our own kin? There's an antidote to this pain. Christ offered it to his enemies, his accusers, and he taught us to extend it to ours. He said, Father, forgive them. We, though, cling to the wrongs wrought against us. We cuddle our pain like a newborn pup. Hold to bitterness against our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers. We internalize it, adopt it as part of our identity. We nurture loyalty to our wounds, count it as some grand virtue of being human. Yes, we develop a fierce affection for our poison. Unforgiveness is the ultimate act of the human will, I think. It's a private declaration that we know better than Christ that we'd sooner our enemies receive their just desserts than find reconciliation. So as we wrap this up, um, unforgiveness can come in a variety of different kind of sneaky forms. We can carry an offense for a friend against someone, right? We can carry an offense or unforgiveness against even just a type of person, right? Someone of the opposite sex or another race, maybe a boss, that really you bounce from job to job because there's somebody 20 years ago who was your boss that you've not forgiven, released the debt to God. It's sneaky. It's a variety. It can't even be um, someone in this room, someone that you know well, a friend, mom, a dad, 
brother, sister. But the Bible describes this as a root of bitterness that can defile many. So here's why as a pastor in our church, I feel such urgency and passion to preach this message to you today. It's true. Bitterness, anger, unforgiveness rots your soul from the inside out. That's true. But get this. If bitterness and unforgiveness is allowed to stay in your soul, it doesn't just stay in a vacuum of your heart. It defiles the church. It defiles many. And it'll rot a church from the inside out. We have got to be vigilant. We've got to be fervent. We've got to be humble. We've got to go and have courageous conversations. We've got to ask for forgiveness. Right? We've got to forgive our brothers and our sisters or we will be defiled and there will be poison that's spread. So stepping through this is a process. It is a process Seeing our condition, the log in our own eye, seeing the immense sacrifice of Jesus for us and releasing our debt to God. An unforgiven heart is an unforgiving heart. But empowered by the gospel, empowered by the gospel, a forgiven heart is a forgiving heart and it diffuses goodness and life and joy in a body and in our city. 